Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it actually all went down. And today I'm joined by Chris Barden, who is a founder of Shazam. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Shazam is one of the most iconic apps that has ever been built. Uh, you guys have over a billion downloads and the company was acquired by Apple in 2017 for $400 million. So just a very, very huge success story. But first, I want to take it back to the early days of the company. And a lot of people think that Shazam uh, was created around around the time when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone in 2008. Uh, But the reality is that you guys got started 10 years prior. So you had the idea uh, for Shazam in 1999. You put together your original founding team uh, of Philip, Avery, and Dirash. And um, Philip and Dirash, you knew very well before you guys got started with Shazam. They were your friends. And there's some people out there that would say that getting into business with friends or family is not a good idea. So my first question to you, what are some of the positive and negative things about being in business with friends? I definitely don't think that uh, that rule of don't get into business with friends necessarily applies. I think in in a way, sometimes a friend is someone that you really know so much better than sort of just uh, just a sort of a social contact or a business contact um, that, um, that that can give you a lot of advantages uh, in terms of being able to evaluate whether they would be a good co-founder. Um, because, because really, you know, when you're evaluating who, who your co-founder uh, should be or could be, um, you know, it's much more than just simply skill set. Um, you're, you're, because you're creating a company together, you're, it's almost like getting married. Um, and uh, you're going to, uh, basically not only make decisions together, but you want to know, you know, how well you work together, how well you, um, you know, how you handle uh, disagreements and, um, you know, what you're kind of driving, uh, you know, what, what really drives you as a person, what's important to you, um, you know, things like uh, integrity was a big one for me in terms of uh, it was a quality that was extremely important. Um, and that's something I think that you can have a better sense for someone's integrity when they're a close friend. Um, than when you just have had business interactions with them, for example. Um, so uh, in a way, I actually think that if a friend has the right skill set um, and sort of that, that you know, that, that can mean complementary skills um, uh, or strengths in some way to what you have, um, and then they can be a, a great a co-founder. Um, so, yeah, so th- that's kind of that's kind of how I thought through that selecting friends as as co-founders. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could definitely see how uh, being prior friends with your co-founders could help, uh, especially at some of the low points in the company. And I would imagine it would also strengthen uh, your friendship with them as well. Um, there was a point very early on uh, in Shazam's history where you guys had a business meeting, and during that meeting, you guys were quite secretive about revealing all the information about the idea, the Shazam idea that you guys had at that time. And I feel like there's some founders out there that have um, a similar approach where they're secretive about their idea. Uh, In your opinion, do you think that secrecy is a good thing? And if not, what would you say to founders to help them overcome this this need for secrecy? Yeah, um, I think that, uh, 
Yeah, I think you can, well, let's put it this way. I think being secretive is not uh, extremely harmful, um, but the, but if you're overly secretive, it can it can actually hold you back um, in, in um, really gathering the right input and insights um, for your business. Um, so I think there's a balance. I think, uh, you know, the opposite of being secretive would be, you know, putting up a website saying, you know, here's what my business is going to do. And, um, you know, maybe even getting some press uh, and so on. Um, and then, then, then you're kind of, you're right, your concept is sort of much more widely available or broadcast to the world. Um, whereas uh, I think kind of a, a nice balance is to be somewhat open um, about at least, you know, big parts of your idea um, with, you know, the people that you think might give you some meaningful feedback. And, and those people could be a lot of people. It's, it's not just a, a very small number that are um, under maybe an NDA with you, um, but it could be um, friends or um, people that you know well in the industry, um, or even people you don't know well, but that are experts in, in the industry. Um, and uh, you can get some quite valuable feedback and insights um, from those people. And if, if you're uh, trying to be super secretive, you may not be able to get to the point of getting that feedback or, or getting those insights because you're sort of reticent to share the idea. So I guess uh, my view is um, th there's a balance and, and, and definitely being overly secretive, I think, can hold you back in terms of uh, getting the, the learnings that you need in those early days. Does that answer the question? So, yeah, so we were, we were actually quite secretive um, with the Shazam idea because we thought it was pretty novel and, and we wanted you know, to get a, a sort of a head start and um, kind of trying to conquer the techno technological hurdles to, to sort of support the, the, this concept. Um, but, um, uh, but, you know, we did share it, obviously, with, with the people that, I mean, so we were out meeting with uh, PhDs in uh, audio signal processing, asking if they could invent a technology like this. And, um, you know, obviously, with those people, we had to share the idea. Um, and essentially, that means we're sharing the idea with the exact people that have the talents to uh, to, to invent it. Essentially, um, but we didn't, you know, we weren't, we didn't think it made sense to sort of literally enter into NDAs with each one and um, and you know really be overly protective. So you spoke about some of the tech hurdles that you guys had to overcome, and when you guys were getting started, there was nothing out there uh, that could identify a song based on audio that was playing. So you guys had to literally invent the technology. Um, which is incredible. And once you guys did invent the technology, you went on to raise your angel round and you raised the round by cold emailing investors. And I want to say that's a bit of a non-traditional way of raising capital in the sense that most people nowadays, they try to uh, get intros, they try to go to their network. Do you feel that cold emailing investors is still a viable way of raising capital in 2019? Um, I, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm not, it would be hard for me to assess um, which method is sort of, most effective just because I've, I've only had the kind of one experience um but but uh i guess i, I sort of had my own built-in philosophy of of how i wanted to raise capital for shazam um i mean you know definitely the much more standard way um is what you're describing um especially in places where there's a lot of seed level investors or angel investors for example um and um so this you know that way is just you kind of it's almost like a shotgun approach you know you're just sort of going out there trying to find Really, anyone that's in, in, interested in making in, in investments, um, early stage investments, and you're out pitching your idea to them, and and to get in front of them, you know, obviously referrals are can be very helpful because that's how a lot of them screen is is basically they only want to meet with the companies that are kind of referred by a, someone they trust. Um, but um, well, I mean, for, we were we were in the UK, we, so we started Shazam in London, 
Um, and so in definitely the UK does not have the extensive angel uh, network out there um, that you find in Silicon Valley. So that, for what, that was one thing. So there wasn't just like a, you know, things like angel list and there were no people known as super angels. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it just wasn't like an, a, 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 a um, kind of a, a, a common concept, this concept of angel investing. Um, so that was one factor that played into um, our decision on our approach. Um, but more importantly, I just felt that um, there's a bunch of reasons why um, I would like to raise money from kind of very specifically targeted individuals. Um, and those individuals were basically people that had a very strong expertise um, or background r- related to what my startup was in. Um, and so for since Shazam was basically music and mobile phones and technology, um, essentially it was people like that, people that had either strong backgrounds in music or str- strong backgrounds in music technology or mobile technology. Um, and so I just thought that if we target those types of people, that would be the best type of investor um, for for several reasons. One is that you know if they invested it, it would provide validation um, on on the business. And actually, that turned out to be very important. In fact, my my Series A venture capitalist even said that one of the one of the m- most compelling um, things about our pitch deck was was the fact that the angel investors we had were were pretty um, you know high profile individuals in the music industry. Um, and then. Um, Secondly, you know, you're, you're, you're resonating with them because when an angel investor makes an investment, um, I think there's two, two big reasons they want to make the investment. And one of them is their passion for the, for the area. And so by, by targeting, like, for example, music, uh, big music industry uh, uh, experts and so on, um, you know, they can resonate with the Shazam concept because it's something that they understand and they, they're passionate about music. Plus, the second thing is that I think they want to um, have almost an unfair advantage as an investor. And the unfair advantage comes from their their deep expertise and knowledge. Um, and uh, and so if they invest in something that they know a lot about, they can they can then steer the the chances of your success and and therefore the, um, you know have this unfair advantage in their investment, essentially steering the path of their investment. Um, and then and then uh, yeah, so the, I, I guess those are the the, the the primary reasons. And so yeah, so, but to find those individuals, we didn't have um, directly or indirectly through our network uh, contacts um, that were sort of big senior executives in the music industry. So um, I just decided to uh, basically cold email them and, and it turned out it worked. We got the former chairman and CEO of EMI, one of the major labels, the former chairman of BMG in the UK, another one of the major labels, the founder of Liquid Audio, which was a public company and music technology at the time. Um, so a, a variety of, and the chief, former uh, chief technology officer of British Telecom, who was uh, obviously uh, close to the whole telecom space. Um, so those are all angel investors in Shazam, and um, so the method method did work. On the topic of raising capital, you guys raised uh, your Series A in 2001, uh, which was in the middle of a huge global uh, financial crisis, the dot-com crash. And there's some people out there that are speculating that uh, we're on a brink of another crisis. Um, usually these things happen every 10 years or so, and it's been roughly 10 years since the last one. What sort of advice would you give to founders that are running a startup? Uh, either in the middle of a financial crisis, or what can they do to prepare for one? Yeah, I, I mean, actually, yeah, we we definitely started Shazam basically right, essentially right as you mentioned, right after the crash. Um, and looking back, I mean, that made some things really difficult. So there's no doubt that raising capital was extremely hard to do. Um, most uh, the venture capitalists that we pitched to uh, told us that they were not investing in anything that was B to C. 
um, and they viewed B2C as higher, much higher risk than B2B, which I think it generally is. Um, and we were definitely B2C. Um, and then they were, um, they were, uh, they were frankly really fighting fires for their portfolio companies, trying to keep those companies alive. So not really making a lot of investments at all. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty challenging time. Um, and um, I, but then on the other hand, there's sort of advantages I think uh, to uh, running a startup in uh, in those difficult times. You know, obviously assuming you do solve the problem of getting capital, um, which we did through just simply perseverance and determination, um, then a lot of things, a lot of other things become uh, much better for you. So, I mean, recruiting obviously can be better because there's more talent on the market um, uh, that's available. And that can be really frustrating um, in times like when really good times, when all the talent gets vacuumed up by uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and so on. Um, And then, uh, you know, other things were more affordable. I remember we took over the office spaces of one of the imploded dot coms and um, even bought all their uh, chairs and tables and so on for pennies on the dollar. Um, and so, you know, that was helpful for us as a business that would have been tougher for us in, in boom times. Um, and uh, and then I would say sort of even competition, um, you know, if, if you're, you're, you, have, you, you can be less concerned about competition, both from other startups as well as large companies that are also having to prioritize their focus on kind of the, the near-term revenue opportunities. Um, and so you can, yeah, you can just kind of, kind of hunker down and focus on building your startup. Um, and, and I think that kind of uh, the time aspect of um, urgency um, is, has a little bit less pressure and, and the competitive aspect is, it has less pressure because of, uh, you know, how everyone is sort of distracted by the tough times. Um, so that allows you more time to build your business in a thoughtful way, uh, because things do take time, especially when you're limited on capital. Um, and, um, so, you know, having more time is, can be uh, to your advantage. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess my main advice for entrepreneurs in difficult times is just keep thinking outside the box on how can you build your business with less capital? Um, and how can you get to, how can you find that includes finding early revenue that includes um, doing things in a less expensive way um, that includes doing less um, or doing or, or taking more time to do things um, and uh, but just constantly thinking about that capital efficiency um, and that that will give you that was your sort of your biggest advantage um, in difficult times. So you mentioned perseverance and you guys uh, essentially overcame a lot of hurdles so anything from inventing the technology to raising in a financial crisis to uh, launching. So you guys persevered through a lot of difficult times in the company. And you also speak in other interviews that perseverance is one of the most important skill sets uh, for founders to have. And it's one of the, the biggest things to, uh, for entrepreneurial success. But I feel like on the other side of things, uh, sometimes it's equally important to know when to let go. So where do you draw the line? Like, how do you know when is it worth it to keep on pushing through uh, versus when, it's just, when is it better to just pretty much throw in the towel? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have to say, I mean, because you know, ultimately, um, you you could easily, you know, be sort of so focused on being perseverant on something that really you're never going to get there, and therefore you're, um, you know, just wasting you know months or years of time. Um, uh, and so I think you know, ultimately, it's just honestly, it's sort of just a judgment issue. You know, you're really um, 
it's a combination. Yeah, it's judgment where you're 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 basically deciding is is your goal achievable, and also is that goal mission critical for for what you're for where where you're trying to go. Um, and um, and so you know if it's mission critical, um, I mean I, you know I'll, I'll give a great example. Um, if you look at the early days of Dropbox, um, one thing that they persevered on, um, and in fact they continued to persevere on for many years after that, but certainly in the early days was really conquering synchronization, um, a synchronization of, 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 of documents um, between a, a device and the cloud. Um, and they did that because they really believed that that synchronization, if they conquered it and made it incredibly reliable, then they would create this sort of seamless experience with the cloud that would be so much better than having to just upload things and then download things. Um, and um, that was a really, really hard problem to, to tackle really hard and that required and they've had to prioritize it um by putting most of their engineering talent on solving that one problem um but um but i think they 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 recognize that you know they that they should not give up on that because that would be their kind of core to their to really breaking through and having something that that was so much better than everyone else um so i think that's that's sort of an example of where you're recognizing that a goal is so mission critical that you just don't want to give up on it um and that was true also for obviously for, for Shazam for music recognition for you know just identifying a song um, in a noisy environment um, and and just have being laser focused on that. Um, but on the other hand, there there could be other things that companies try to do that you know just simply may not be so mission critical, um, or you just might you might recognize that you know what this is just not gonna it's not gonna work out. It's just not feasible. It's just gonna take too long. Um, and um, Sometimes those are things that are involved reliance on partners, by the way, which can take sometimes years and be very um, uncertain. Um, and on some of those things, you just, I think sometimes you have to throw in the towel and just realize that you're just, your business is, you're never going to get there. If you keep on, even if you keep on trying, it's just going to take years and you just going to need to find, find another way. Um, so it, it really is um, all down to judgment. So another very critical thing for startups is timing. And some startups start too late. Uh, when they get into a market, there's already a lot of competition. Some start too early um, where, you know, maybe there's not the, the infrastructure, uh, the required infrastructure is not available yet. Uh, in the case of Shazam, it seemed like you guys were way ahead of your time. So you mentioned in one interview that if you guys started the company five years later, you would have had a much easier time. How do you approach timing? Like, how do you know when is it too late to enter a particular market? When is it too early? Uh, or when is it just just the right time? Hmm. Uh, that's a great question. I, mean, I think that uh, again, I think it comes down to judgment. I mean, you know, as, as a startup, I think you want to be just a little bit ahead of your time um, because if you're a little bit ahead of your time, that mean that means you're kind of getting started on solving something that's going to be extremely relevant to the world, um, and uh, you know, but but you're getting started on it before it really is solved by you know, either another startup or, or, or the incumbent large companies in the world. Um, so you do want to be a little bit ahead of your time so that you can have that advantage so that you sort of have something, you have some technology or offering um, that is really relevant at the, at the time that the kind of hockey stick of relevancy um, becomes uh, applicable for, for, your, for the market that you're going for. Uh, and hopefully you're right that that really will happen, that, that there will be the sort of hockey stick of relevancy. Um, uh, but if you're too far ahead of your time, and actually it turned out that we were too far ahead of our time, um, you know, and I'm talking about many years because Shazam launched 
Um, you know, we are starting Shazam, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we are starting Shazam a full eight years before the iPhone came out and, and um, uh, you know, or yeah, seven to eight years and, and, and you know, and eight to nine years ahead of the App Store coming out. Um, and I, I didn't, I think we didn't realize that, you know, it wasn't until the App Store came that there would really be a big market for, for, uh, for, for something like Shazam. Um, and we were counting on the fact that, uh, that the just mobile phones themselves, even without apps, would be a sufficient market for us, which it turned out was not the case. Um, so when you're way too far ahead of your time, obviously it's just very hard to survive for that many years before you start to see traction. Um, you really don't have that much time in startups typically. Um, you have maybe you know one, two, three, four years, depending on how good you are at um, at uh, capital preservation. Um, so yeah, so I guess you know again it, it's judgment, and you're essentially having to predict the future um, and uh, say you know when is this all going to happen? And and we knew that a lot of things were coming in mobile, like 3G and color phones and the early versions of apps like Java and and Brew and so on. Um, but I think we didn't we uh, didn't quite uh, understand how long it would take before there was a real breakthrough to the masses um, in terms of doing all these advanced things on mobile phones. Yeah, and I think if you take a look at your initial vision for Shazam, which was essentially to make audio clickable, uh, just as you know, links to websites are clickable, and not, not just for music, but as well as um, TV shows and movies, uh, this sort of vision would not be possible on computers. And it's only possible on something that people carry with them everywhere they go, such as smartphones. Uh, so in some ways, you guys predicted and you guys were banking on mobile becoming huge. And um, this is, again, 10 years before mobile actually did become huge. So do you have any sort of predictions for, let's say, the next 10, 20 years uh, as far as what sort of industries, what sort of technologies uh, do you expect to become huge? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I get asked that question a lot. I think, and uh, I think I often think I'm not one of the best people to answer it. I think um, just because I tend to be, as an entrepreneur, I tend to, you know, pick areas and then zoom in on those and, uh, and rather than, um, you know, become a generalist, like a venture capitalist who's looking at a lot of things and a lot of trends and, and seeing so many pitches and stories that they can start to pick up on signals of, of what's, co- what's coming. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I'm the best person to give an answer, but I, I guess I can give you just sort of a, you know, my answer anyway, uh, for, what it, for what it's worth, which is, um, you know, the, the area that I'm particularly fascinated by um, in terms of massive impact uh, is, is essentially artificial intelligence, machine learning, which is obviously, you know, one of the big trends. Um, but I do think that, um, that there'll be one by one, a lot of businesses that will, uh, you know, be significantly impacted and, and even create opportunities for new products and new startups and so on. Um, that solve problems really well um, through uh, through essentially employing uh, artificial intelligence and and machine learning. Um, so that that's definitely a category um, that I'm I'm very excited about, and I think will be um, you know will create some significant change in the coming years. I want to switch gears to Shazam's acquisition. Uh, the company was acquired by Apple in 2017. It was a 400 million dollar deal. Can you share with us about how it actually went down? Yeah, so I think we um, uh, it, we we at Shazam, um, it, I think we're ready for uh, sort of an exit. Um, you know, as you as you mentioned, a lot of startups are um, are uh, are uh, you know sort of seeking that exit. And, and keep in keep in mind that Shazam, when it did exit, 
um, it was a, a good um, 18 years from, from when we started the company. Um, we sometimes like to joke that we were always two years away from exit um, and uh, during that 18 year period. But um, yeah, so we, we, uh, we did uh, start to engage on, uh, com- and, and again, as you can imagine, I have to, you know, I can only talk about so much um, with regards to this process, but um, uh, we did engage in conversations um, with uh, a variety of companies that we thought were complementary to Shazam um, in, uh, you know, around the world. Um, and as you might imagine, they're also just very large technology companies. So you can, you can sort of imagine who some of those companies would be. And, um, and you, knowing that Shazam's core businesses really were um, music-related and advertising-related, um, that's because advertising is how we made our money, and we were doing some pretty innovative things in advertising um, in terms of uh, in, interactions um, with advertisements. Um, as well as uh, we were doing lots of great stuff in music, and, and uh, we're a significant influencer of uh, music discovery. Um, and um, so those were two common themes for uh, areas that, that were often of interest to, to these large prospective uh, uh, buyers of, of, of companies. Um, and, um, and, and really, we just, you know, with the assistance of some um, really talented advisors, um, we uh, we engaged in, uh, in in a very thoughtful process of of communicating um, our vision and um, our um, you know the strategic advantages that we brought to the table um, uh, the, the the kind of you know the business that we had built which included um, a very large base of of users that were very uh, you know and a big brand um, and users most importantly that I think. Um, we're really delighted by Shazam. Um, uh, Shazam would consistently get um, very, very high uh, ratings in the App Store, even rel- relative to some of the top apps that you can think of um, that are used today. Uh, so we really focused heavily on on delighting our users. Um, and so I think we built a um, a big brand, as you mentioned, over a billion downloads of Shazam, and and um, consistently we're getting, you know, more than 8 million, I think, new downloads, um, new users basically downloading Shazam every month. So just a nice, consistent growth. Um, and so, you know, bringing all those things together, um, it, it, we basically, you know, just were looking for the right partner that, um, that would really, uh, you know, find Shazam complementary to their business um, and, and one that we felt like we'd fit well into. Um, and um, and I, I could, I'd, you know, I'd say I couldn't be happier with the outcome. I mean, obviously, Apple um, is a company that, uh, also focuses on delighting users, um, and also as a as a brand that's loved by a large number of people, um, both in uh, technology and and in music. Um, and obviously, they're a major player in music. Um, up there um, with Spotify and streaming, and and they were you know definitely the the global leader in digital music before the world of streaming uh, in de- with iTunes. Um, and um, so, just very complimentary to to Shazam. Um, so yeah, so that, that was the process and it was a, a very lengthy process. Um, I think, it, gosh, when I, when I think about it, I mean, it was more than, you know, from kind of kicking off that, those, that kind of process of thinking about where we fit best, um, until the final conclusion, um, would have been, um, more significantly more than a year. But part of that is because of, of the, the, the lengthy regulatory process that we went through on the acquisition nowadays, the. European Union um, often um, carefully scrutinize uh, acquisitions, particularly by large companies such as uh, Google and and Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and so on. 
so that, that that definitely drew things out a bit but um but yeah it, it was uh we had some great conversations during that process and um and really some significant deep dives with uh, several uh pr- prospective companies that that, that uh, it could have worked out with but I, th- I definitely think that um that you know i couldn't dream of a better outcome than apple so you mentioned that besides apple you guys were in talks with a few other companies as well uh, what would you say to founders that are running a startup, they're doing pretty well, and they start getting approached by corporate dev people uh, with acquisition talks from larger companies? Uh, are these meetings worth taking? Are they a waste of time? Uh, or do you kind of gauge uh, based on uh, readiness level of the startup to get acquired? What, what sort of advice would you give to people in this position? I mean, I don't think it's a waste of time. I think it's good for you as a founder to always know uh, just be aware. You need to know your market, really. Um, and you should be, you know, even if you're years away from where you think you want to exit, and maybe you're planning to go IPO one day, um, you really would be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't always know that kind of mar- that the market for your, you know, what you, ha- your, the asset that you control, your, your company. Um, and the only way to keep your um, kind of finger on the pulse of what that looks like is to, is to maintain, I think, um, uh, some kind of uh, ongoing uh, um, correspondence and and uh, interactions with with the the key players in the space, and as you often facilitated through through the corporate development uh, folks. But not only, by the way, not only um, are they uh, kind of facilita- facilitated through that, but obviously, you know, to the extent that you have uh, commercial relationships um, with with these companies, that that also is a, is another way of kind of cozying up. Um, I mean, you know, just as an example, uh, you know, Shazam had obviously did a lot of things with Apple in the years leading up to the acquisition. You know, we, we were a, a big driver of iTunes affiliate sales, and uh, we did lots of stuff in the, with their, with, in the App Store um, and pre- premiering their new technologies and so on on uh, things like, uh, you know, the, the iPad and the, and the Apple Watch and, and you name it. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think, again, as a founder, I think it's good to, to be just to, to stay close. Um, and you might you might get some level of interest or or even potential offers um, for your company, and uh, you know the, it's just it doesn't mean you that you need to do a deep dive and really take them seriously. Um, but it's good to again be aware of them and um, and really only engage uh, when you know at the time that uh, that you think there's one that could be of interest. And you know you hear about you know the, those portings like the, I think the Instagram sale. You know that was a that was basically. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg really courting Kevin Systrom, um, from what I understand, just reading in the press, you know, for for quite a long time, um, and and led to a led to a very significant acquisition. So, um, so again, you just don't know where the, where those things are going to lead go, and so I think it's worth it's good to be open. Well, founders are always told to have an exit strategy, uh, even in ridiculously early stages like the raising a pre-seed. Uh, did you guys have an exit strategy? And if you did, was Apple ever in your sights? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, exit strategy is a funny thing to say because um, it makes it sound like you, you can kind of control um, your exit. And, and, uh, and I think that it, it, people can misunderstand what that really means. Um, you know, in, in my mind, there's really just two things, two main things that you can do. Um, and all they are doing is really sort of um, optimizing the opportunity for your exit. You know, you definitely don't control your exit unless you go IPO. Um, and then optimizing your opportunity for exit um, through M&A, which is obviously more common than IPO. Um, so it's definitely the one that I think that 
all founders should be very, very aware of as a form of exit. Um, I think the two main things are to be just building a great product, a great business, and, and great relationships with your customers, um, and be very laser focused on that, um, because that you know, is one thing that ultimately makes you um, attractive to a prospective buyer. Um, and then the second thing is, uh, is as I said, sort of um, you know, forming closer relationships with um, some of the companies that may one day be a buyer. Um, and, uh, cause it's sometimes it's, it's that close relationship. It could be a, a core partnership, um, of some type, um, that is complementary to both parties. Um, but often it's those that allow you to get to know the people, um, and, and allow the, the, the prospective buyer to really, to get to know your company and your product and your technology, uh, well enough that it, it becomes sort of in, of interest to them, um, to potentially completely to own that. Um, so I think that. Um, thinking through as a founder, thinking through, you know, who are the companies out there that um, are most likely to see value in owning you one day, and why? Why would they see value in you in owning you one day? Um, and then uh, thinking through, you know, how how can you potentially kind of get to know those companies really well today? You know, is there something that you can start doing with them today? Um, and, um, and that, that would be again, mutually beneficial though, not because you can, you can only distract yourself so much. Um, I think that's probably the, the that's, that's the, the next best thing you can do after the first thing I mentioned, which is just, you know, continuing to build great products, great business and great relationships with your customers. So my last question to you, Chris, is a bit of a funky one. Uh, you're of course, big into music. Uh, Shazam is all about music and Apple, as you mentioned, is a big player in music. Is there any song or artist that you associate with Shazam? Uh, it could be in the early days of the company, maybe during the time that you guys launched or around the acquisition uh, or at any point of the company at all. Is there any particular song or artist that you associate with Shazam? Uh, yeah, I, I guess the first company, uh, it's the first band name that comes to mind for some reason uh, is the Pixies. Um, and um, it's not that it's... One, necessarily, you know, one of my favorite bands. I mean, I think they're great, but um, the, you know, some some other bands that would be my favorite bands. Um, but um, there was just a just a quite a fun sort of a funny story that um, where their music uh, threw us for a loop a little bit in our early days when um, when we were uh, developing our technology for a commercial launch, um, and uh, it was leading to some essentially false positives um, where um, where. Uh, we were getting we were getting an issue where um, for one of our investors, um, every song that he shazammed, uh, it would come back. No matter what he shazammed, it would come back and say it's the Pixies, um, and it became like a almost a joke because it really only happened to him. Um, but it turned out that uh, there was a certain sort of feedback sound in one of their songs that um, that uh, that matched the the feedback sound you hear when you put your mobile phone right up next to a speaker and create a feedback loop, um, and that was uh, creating this false positive. Um, so, and, and our, and this particular investor was, uh, was doing that. He was so keen for it to work leading up to the commercial launch that every time he shazammed a song, he would literally walk right up to the speaker and put his phone essentially right next to it, um, causing that feedback sound. Um, we solved that problem later, but anyway, for, for that reason, um, that band always kind of, uh, is the one that comes to mind, uh, when I think of those early days of Shazam. So as we're getting ready to wrap up here, Chris, uh, tell us about what you have going on in your life now and if you have any plans for starting another startup in the future. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I actually did decide that um, this is uh, it's, it's long been my dream um, after working for, for many years, 
since Shazam working for many years at Google and Dropbox that um, I really wanted to start another company. Um, and uh, my goals are quite different than they were with Shazam. I'm not trying to build a, a huge company that raises lots of venture capital money and, and is going to be a billion dollar company. But, um, but I do want to do, it's a little bit more mission driven or impact driven. Um, but, um, but I'm excited to be working on it. And I have been for, for uh, about nine months now. Um, and it, it's a very early stage. It's really just, really just me at this stage. But, uh, but yeah, they, I'm focused on computer vision uh, as a technology enabling my, my, uh, my startup. Um, and so uh, it's sort of incubation stage um, as to you know, exactly how it's going to play out. So I won't get into much, too much more detail, um, but it's definitely exciting to be uh, you know, starting from the ground up and you know, working towards creating something. Uh, I, I really enjoy that kind of creative process. Well, let's hope it's another success so we can have you back on the show. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, Chris. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.